0: Hi, this is Pep Rosenfeld and I am broadcasting live, and when I say live, I mean it's not live at all, from the TQ building here in Amsterdam as we get ready to dive into a interview with uh, Juliet Funt. Juliet is the CEO of Whitespace at Work, a training and consulting f- firm that helps organizations, their leaders, and their employees flip the norms of business in order to reclaim their creativity, their productivity, and their engagement. She uses thought-provoking content and immediately actionable tools to, and uh, by doing so has become a nationally recognized expert in coping with the age of overload in which we all seem to live and work. By focusing on the pivotal differences between activity and productivity, Juliet has a force for change in organizations around the world, helping them find their white space, recharge their people, and reclaim their passion for work. That's who we're talking to in just a moment as we dive into... Business as unusual, the podcast in the serious business of taking business not too seriously. <laughs> Juliet, thanks for joining I, I, us.
1: I wasn't prepared for that intro. It's great. Nice no, to meet you. Thanks it, for having
0: me. It's great to meet you and it's and, and I think the really the, the real thank you is, is for being here. I hope I did justice to the, the edited version of your biography there.
1: Yes, you read it very well.
0: I read it very You're well.
1: You're a good reader.
0: You know, it's not just that, but I, I also did some summarizing. Like, I, you know, <laughs> you, can't, you can't use every ingredient, there was so I tweaking. made my own special. There, there was little,
1: tweaking. Yeah,
0: I there, saw that. There yeah. you go. Um, age of, of overload. Is that is that it? Because I've never heard that term until, well, until I, I, I read it out loud. Uh, yeah. Is that, is that, a, is that a, a Juliet Font original?
1: It, it may be. We've been talking about it for 13 years, uh, so I think I don't know if it's mine or if it's just something I drew in from the world around me. But I think that it's the observation and the summary of almost every professional I see in almost every industry, um, entrepreneur up to Fortune 100 company, running around like a chicken with their head cut off with 64 hours of things to do in a 24-hour period. And and so I feel that we are mostly overloaded. And there are exceptions, and those exceptions are fascinating. But I do think it's something about the time in which we live, the technology that we have access to, the the breadth of possibility of every business day makes us feel overwhelmed. And I don't think, um, I think most people would nod their head at that.
0: I'd even I'm nodding my head. I'd even say that I think that, that like <laughs> what's really criminal is you ask somebody how you're doing and in the old days it was fine. And, you know, we Americans always got, you know, yelled at, oh, how are you? I'm fine. And then you walk away. Right. But now it's like, how are you? Busy. And then you walk oh, away, yeah. and it's like, oh, he's busy. That must be great.
1: Uh, not necessarily. <laughs> well, busy is a badge of honor if you wear it the right way. And there's the, you know, the the Olympics of torture, where some people say I work twelve hours a day, and I work fourteen, and I work sixteen, and we we end up kind of having this competitive um, approach to who's the most tortured in their in their business environment. And we don't really celebrate or show off who's the most creative or who's the most focused or who's the most effective. We just like to wear that um, quantity of tasks as a badge of honor, and that's one of the things that we're always trying to defeat and debunk and kind of walk backwards for people.
0: Well, maybe that that leads into what you know what I what I believe is sort of a a, a foundational principle of 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 your work, which is the difference between you know activity and true mm-hmm. productivity. So maybe it's best if mm-hmm. we start with just like, can you give us the sort of the cliff note version? And for my non-American friends, that's the short version.
1: Yes, yes, it's a. Uh... So if you imagine a typical worker in a let's call it a mid-size up to a large office environment, um, they walk in in the morning and they begin wildly checking off boxes and checking email and going to meetings and making sure that they are moving all the tasks forward in their task software and they do and they do and they do and they do all day long and if they they leave and if they've checked a lot of boxes and deleted a lot of email and sat in a lot of meetings they feel that they had a productive day. And the question is what is the outcome of those actions. Was it productive? Did it create something? Did it create an idea or a relationship or a pivot Um, or was it just movement? And one of the challenging scenarios that I like to say to people is if you put your most talented people in a conference room at 8.30 and gave them donuts and coffee and let them sit in there till five o'clock and they sat, silently looking out of a window, and then at 4.55 they had a game-changing idea that changed the nature of your offering, would that have been a productive day? It would have been an extremely productive day, but there wouldn't have been much motion, there wouldn't have been much checking, there wouldn't have been much running in hallways. And so we have a false equation, I think, of that appearance of busy versus the definition of the word productive, which means to produce something. And I think that I'm not alone in in seeing many many business people go home at the end of an exhausting day and they kind of sit over their glass of wine with their spouse and go, "I have no idea what I accomplished today." And that's the problem that we want to unwind.
0: And do you think that is that problem gets bigger and bigger as the company gets bigger and bigger? <clears throat> because like, you know, if 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 me and my business partner, you know, go out have drinks and have one good idea, we're we're very well aware that <clears throat> those drinks you know paid for themselves 10 times full right. but i feel like it's right. it's when you get that middle management person going like well i have to justify you know your budget and your activities and i do you that know, with task software
1: i've never said it exactly this way but i think it's kind of a a reverse curve i think the entrepreneurs the solopreneurs two three four people have this intense overloaded experience more of their behavior is high value touch points because everything they're doing is important but they're completely maxed and overloaded with it. And they, they feel very victorious when they've checked off a lot of boxes. And then in the mid-sized company, there's this little area with a pinch more sanity around the 100, 200, 300 company where they're sort of operating as an in-tech community and they still have enough smallness to be able to look around and say, this. most of the work we're touching is valuable. And I think actually things are a tiny bit calmer in that size company. And then we start moving up to the pre-fortune and fortune and then the craziness just intensifies where once you get up to a fortune company, if you were an objective person, just looking at how many people have to do something to sign a single check in this organization, you would hmm. just explode with the amount of touch points that are necessary because of all the layers and process and complexity and matrixed organizations that have been created. Um, we, I'll tell you honestly, and it's funny, I was just writing about this that when consultant friends and I leave offices, a lot of times we say something that might sound harsh to the people hearing it, Mr. and Mrs. Corporate out there, but we say we could never ever work in one of these environments and we're grateful that we don't. But it isn't because of salary or freedom or having a boss or any of the things that you'd think. It's just the complexity. It's the, that as an outsider, you have a very objective view of the complexity and the amount of unnecessary complexity. And, um, it, it really makes people exhausted, and it wastes a lot of talent capacity, which actually can be put um, in a quantification, and you can put dollars, to.
0: And it's, I was just going to ask you, I was going to ask you to quantify it percentage-wise, but like, well, how, how much time is wasted at companies? How much time is not productive time, do you think?
1: Good question. We actually have data about that, because we ask our clients to uh, allow us to survey that data, and then we put it through... Some analysis with their salaries, and what we find is it's usually about a million dollars annually for every fifty human beings in an organization.
0: <laughs> that's that's phenomenal. That's uh, so that's, that's that's taking their
1: salary data, and and I can get more granular and how that comes out if you're interested. It's actually, uh, to our knowledge, we're the only company in the world that's really um, fully quantifying that kind of busy work. So it's an interesting conversation if you want to go a little deeper in there.
0: Well, I'm. I mean, I'm. If 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 you know, if you don't mind. Uh, if you if you don't mind getting getting a little quantitative, i'd I'd love to hear more specifics
1: <laughs> yeah. so I think it's something that um is very rarely done. And honestly, we did it only initially to sort of take leaders by the shoulders and and try to wake them up from a very disturbing amount of complacency that we see around these issues. So we said, okay, well, let's just start asking people. What percentage of the email is CC's? What percentage of the meetings do you feel like you're doodling and playing hangman? What percentage of the reports are you writing and you feel like nobody ever really reads them? What percentage of the interruptions that you are given are unnecessary and then you have two, three, four minutes of valuable recovery time? We just started taking all those thin slices of waste and then we found out how many minutes and then we found out how many hours. And then we found out what the value of a person was per hour for that company based on their salary data, and then we just did multiplication that your eight-year-old can do with how many hours wasted versus how much an hour is worth, and we come up with the million-for-fifty number. The the hidden secret behind the million-for-fifty number is it's actually two million-for-fifty, but what we do is we cut the waste in half before we publicize it because when people self-report their own waste, there's a an, there's a sometimes a lack of objectivity there and it can have some problems in the data. So we just go, okay, just to be conservative, since it's is self-reporting data, we'll just whack it in half and we come up with the million for 50 number. Um, That's funny. I would have I hope... thought,
0: I would have thought that, that, that pe- when people self-report, they report themselves as more important than they really are. And actually it would be double what you came up with.
1: <laughs> it's well, it's they that, but they sometimes do inflate. That's why we cut huh. it in half. Cause when hmm. we want to come back to you or a leader or a, Publisher and say this data is valid. We want to make sure it's not inflated when we talk no. about the waste. So oh, we're I, cutting I, it in I, half.
0: I understand why, you're, why you, you delivered conservatively. I just feel like if somebody asked me, yeah, "So, how'd you spend your day today?" Productively, oh, I certainly didn't oh, sit around too. wasting time.
1: <laughs> yes, that too. Well, the reason that they're able to be honest at all is they blame it on the company. So, if you say how many, what percentage of your meetings hmm. are a waste of time, and you define that as time that you are not contributing or benefiting from sitting in the chair. People will say, usually about thirty percent, thirty to thirty-five percent, but they're blaming that on someone else. If you ask I a see. senior leader, if you ask a senior leader how many of the meetings that you call are wasteful, you get a much lower number. Right. right? That's my problem right now. Is I call the
0: meetings. I call the meetings, so I assume they're all valid.
1: <laughs> hey, you're okay. uh, so what we call a carrier.
0: Uh, I, I that boy. That's just so much about that title. I don't like. Um, <laughs> well, just, let me let me ask you: When you first started looking at these numbers, were you asked to do it by by an organization? Did they say, "Hey, we've got a bad feeling. Please come in and and, and you know make us feel better"? Or did you say, "Hey, we've got a bad feeling, and who is courageous enough to let us poke around through their numbers"?
1: It was it was sort of. Um I think it was kind of in the middle so it this is part of our protocol when we do culture change with a company we need to have a pre and a post so we can ascribe a delta of behavior change to our work so we need to show that we move the needle and in many training companies they don't care about showing an ROI on training but we are very very invested in that and that's part of hmm. our culture So we needed to get this data in order to say, what did you look like before Jenny Craig and what do you look like after Jenny Craig? For those of you who are not familiar, what did you look like when you were heavy? What did you look like when you were thin? You need a pre-post picture. And so the data originally came out of pre and post. Then we started realizing that there was this enormous gap between the pain that populations feel and the pain that their leaders believe to be true. And you'd have this enormous pain in frontline and middle management. And then way up above, like a renaissance lord with a perfumed hanky to not smell the street, there would be some executive who perceived no problem. And so we needed to find a way to say, hey, executive, you have an enormous problem. And the anecdotal version of that was not enough for a lot of those executives. And so we began, and still do, um sometimes give away this quantification work if it's a large enough population um, just to get the executive off of that complacency that I talked about. So when you deliver a report to someone and it says hey your 200 people are wasting four million dollars a year of annual talent time now does that seem like something worth talking about? Now you've gotten somebody's attention.
0: So with so many companies wasting so much you know time and money and energy and person power, why aren't more companies trying to fix this problem?
1: Yeah, that's the million-dollar question of my entire life. Um, I think that some conversations have their their day in the sun, and I think that this conversation will be unbelievably normative in five, six, seven, eight years. I don't know Hmm. exactly when the time frame is, but it is only the most future-thinking leaders right now that are calling this problem urgent. They just it's just not in the zeitgeist yet of something that we think is really important. We just stuff it down and say, yeah, work is a pain and there's a lot of waste and I hate my CCs and there's just this—that's that complacency again coming in. There are leaders, though, we call them the evolved leaders, that are seeing around the corner and they know that the future of work will be simpler and they know that they want to get there as fast as humanly possible and so they want to prioritize this problem. But what happens in a typical company is it gets sublimated because they have a checklist and they say I'm waiting for my leaders to ask me about what their top problems are. So when the leaders come in and they say our problems are retention, engagement, uh, not building an attractive workplace culture, they don't realize that those are referral problems often from the core problem of overload. So they they miss the subtext and this is one of the things that we work hard in our our, um, content sharing to educate people about.
0: But is that? And first of all, I, I think it's clear we'd all rather be uh, evolved leaders than you know Neanderthal leaders. I mean, <laughs> I, feel, I feel like you're. I feel like you're. You're putting some weight in the title, and I still don't know what a carrier yeah, is, but true. I know I don't like it. Um, <laughs> what, what you um, you say the core problem is 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 overload? Is that is is that a culture problem? Is there is do, do organizational cultures just you know sort of overvalue overwork?
1: Well, first of all, I should say it's this is not a problem in every organization there are certainly organizations that are more mindful and maybe I do need to I want to make sure about the uh, judgmentalism of that evolved leader but that's that's objectively what we see leaders who do a little bit more personal development leaders who are more into lifelong learning culture change being aware of mindset philosophy they do tend to be the leaders that capture this problem earlier but Go, oh, sorry,
0: go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, I think everything that that we hear and and, and strikes us as weird these days, three years later turns out to be like, oh, that makes that's actually a hundred percent makes sense. I don't know what I was thinking three years ago. you know right, it's like right.
1: it's kind of be- like when you when they say if when your checker at the supermarket tells you it's time to buy gold, that means it's time to you've missed the window to buy mm-hmm. gold. You have to kind of wait till something is super common. And this is not super common yet to think about, reducing overload, getting aggressive as waste, making work more thoughtful. It's just, it hasn't reached its blossom yet. And um, of course we, we hope to be part of that blossoming, but it's early in the curve. It's early in the conversation.
0: I, I will say, I, I hear a lot of people at different events, uh, you know, talking about workers want to feel autonomous, workers want to feel like they're, you know, they're they're part of a team, you know, oh, the golden why, people want to know why they're doing things and why their company's mm-hmm. doing things. and I, it, It certainly feels like it's not a huge leap to say also they want to not feel like they're wasting time doing busy work all day.
1: Right. But what you didn't do in that really astute summary is you didn't connect the two. So if you're a Simon Sinek fan and you want to know your why, it's kind of like putting people in a conference room full of bees and it's saying, "Okay, find your why and They could try real hard and they could be super motivated by the beautiful prospect of finding their why. But if if the bees are constantly bothering them and distracting them and hurting them, it's really hard to do that work. And so the overload and the waste is directly connected to the things you just talked about. If they want to figure out how to make business more autonomous or motivated or connected as a team or find their why, they first have to be liberated from all this junk, and so it's yeah. not two conversations; it's one conversation.
0: It, it, it's. I'm being, I'm remind, I'm hearing this and being reminded a lot of, uh, of two uh, big Stephen Covey points that sort of like you know focus on quadrant three, the stuff that's yep. important but not urgent, and right. also like his whole seventh habit, right? Sharpen the saw. To me, an unsharpened saw is a room full of bees, right?
1: Right. Um, The bees, though, are getting worse because of the nature of technology. And so technology is not the only... Hang
0: on, these are robot robot. bees?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they're they're cyber bees. There was Um, a great
0: Black Mirror episode about that, which we are not talking about now, but just saying. We're (laughs) definitely
1: not going there. So the the phone, the IM, the Yammer, the Skype, the ability to constantly be connected every single second has changed the nature of Covey's work. So Covey's, uh, I think, beautiful framework is sort of to me kind of this beautiful um, assumption that you walk into work during work hours and you sit down and you go sharpen the saw, quadrant three, and these beautiful edicts to draw you toward the right things at work. But that's not how people work hmm. these days. They work in the evening, they work in the weekends, they work on vacation, they work while they're brushing their teeth, they work every minute. And so these intrusions are just different and the, the, the way of we, we need, needing to balance them is different. Then we walk into the office and I think that the presence of technology and some of the um, showing off of our busy work, the thing we talked about in the beginning, also get in the way, gets in the way of just having the simple mental clarity to say, okay, what is my quadrant three? Uh, I, can't, I can't be there thinking about that because I'm in back-to-back meetings for seven and a half hours a day without even time to eat or pee. So how would I possibly have that quiet time to apply that lovely uh, Covey philosophy. And I just think this is some of the nature of how things are different now.
0: So I think now that just makes me want to ask, although this might be the million-dollar question that, you know, (laughs) that literally costs a million dollars to have you answer it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what what are the top three things organizations should be doing to help their people have fewer bees in the room? And I'm going to stick with this bees metaphor forever.
1: Let's do it. Let's stick with it. So um, what we notice is that smart companies are starting to simplify, and that is actually the global good news, and we work with countries all over the world, and there are very, very many places where people are saying, you know what, time to simplify, and that's to be rejoiced. But what they tend to do first, uh, but they tend to first pick up some tools that then become an incomplete recipe. So here's the three things that big companies mostly do, smaller companies sometimes, but let's focus on the larger for now. They do reorgs, that's the first thing they do. They go, it must be the org chart. Let's move people to different seats and different seats and different silos and less matrix and more matrix, and so they do lots of reorgs. Then they do technology improvements, new SAP, new computers, new CRM, all that good acronym stuff. And then they somebody goes, what about lean? What about six sigma? What about standard work? What about process? And so they go, okay, let's make charts on the wall that say when you go to the bathroom, you should make a left instead of a right because it's, you know, you're doing the wrong loop in the office and all of that stuff is actually terrific base work. We call it bricks in the house of efficiency, building bricks one at a time. But incredibly few companies remember the mortar between those bricks. And what we believe the mortar is is the behavioral side of work. Can you say no? Can you use impulse control to not interrupt each other? Can you be disciplined? Can you have boundaries? Can you begin and end work so you can recuperate in the evenings and weekends? The behavioral part is what almost nobody touches. And that's our whole world at White Space at Work. That's what we do, that's what we care about, that's what we teach. And this behavioral part, we think if we could just get people to add that fourth component, maybe fifth if you throw in automation and bots, which is becoming more and more of the conversation. um, There would be this beautiful cohesive recipe, this beautiful design for building, but we meet incredibly few companies who remember that part. So to me, that's the million dollar answer is attack the behavioral limitations that keep you from working in a simpler way.
0: But I feel like, I mean, do you when you say that? Do you get a lot of pushback from managers who basically say, you know, yeah, but I don't want my people to say no. I want my people to say yes. You know, ma'am, I, I, I you yeah, I don't want. Uh, what. Yes,
1: and un- until you show them the hmm. million for fifty number, and then you hmm. go, did you know that that a million dollars worth of st- stuff they say yes to each year is just garbage? I'll give you an example. I have a friend who is a manager at GE. He buried on the third page of every elaborate deck that he ever wrote during his tenure at GE, a little box that said, click here for a $25 Amazon gift certificate. And no one ever clicked that because no one ever got to page three (laughs) of any report that he ever wrote with his brilliant mind and his brilliant salary and, and all those hours creating decks that nobody reads. So if you can teach a leader that that's part of the truth of their organization then saying no starts to become an occasional skill that they want. They don't want it necessarily directed toward them, but they would like it um, directed somewhere.
0: Um, that anecdote about the fellow who put the click here for a $25 gift certificate? Yeah. I mean, he didn't do that more than once, did he?
1: No, he did it for his two-year entire two-year <laughs> tenure in the manager position.
0: I mean, and then at the end, he hung himself? Like, <laughs> 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 I feel yeah. like, how, how many decks do you send that nobody's reading? Before well, they, a real they
1: probably read the first page and maybe they skim the second page, and I don't know. I, I I would love to know more about what happened to the third, fourth, fifth page. But it's part of the um, it's part of the overkill that we're also in love with in in most companies, and it has a feeling of validity to it. And uh, our job is to take apart where it is and where it is not.
0: And do you see any dip? Because you know I, I, what I'm hearing is is an american accent talking to american accent about yeah, overwork yeah, yeah. culture yeah. Yeah, is is point. is it a is it a is there a national cultural difference between companies that you've observed
1: well you know france and germany have germany mostly has have been pretty famous in the last couple of years for laying down some interesting uh boundaries around email and technology and we have to still see how those play out in terms of preserving people's home time there are cultures that we observe that have um a more naturally relaxed state to them, but sometimes they become muddied with corporate culture. So for instance, if you're in a Latin culture as an example, um, you probably have a more natural predisposition. I'm, I'm in Florence right now. Like that All the shops close between 1 and 4 and people have wine and go home and relax. And we, we sit here saying this is such a sane way to work. But if you were in a corporate headquarters that happened to be within that more sane Uh, Italian culture or uh, Latin culture what what I believe is that the corporate culture starts to then dominate the national the culture of of origin and so when I meet people who are within a large company you can be Nike Brazil but you're still Nike you can be uh, Sephora uh, Florence but you're still Sephora and so when you be once they get really baked into these companies I believe that the corporate culture starts to kind of override. And, um, you know, be really, it's going to be really interesting. Nordic Business Forum will be my first um, work in the region. And there's this fantasy that all of us hear about the Nordic countries and their wonderful sense of balance and, and liberal time use. And so we'll have to see. I mean, it's all kind of unicorns and paternity leave until we get there and figure out what's real. But, but um, I'm super curious to see what this looks like in that environment.
0: Well, I think I think to be honest, you're in for a treat. Now, I live in the Netherlands. I live in Amsterdam, uh, and having grown up in, you know, just outside of Chicago, when people ask me, "Oh, do you miss the states? Do you want to move back to the states?" and it's like, "Have you lived here? You're, I'd be crazy to go back there." Uh, yeah. And oh, how do they have six weeks off? That is the wrong question. The right question is, what are you doing with two weeks off? Mm. So, you know, you know, there's a stereotype about uh, Finns that you know they build. When they build a house, they build their their own personal sauna before they build any other room. And that is, a, <laughs> that is 100% true. Like, wow. you're going to be in, in, in sauna city when you get there.
1: Wow, interesting.
0: Bring your towel and ladle full of cold water.
1: <laughs> right. But then the, what I'll be really interested in is where does that personal and cultural orientation, which sounds very sane to me, become muddied? As companies become your second culture, and that that that'll be something that I'm very interested to learn
0: i will i just I hope that that theory is wrong. <laughs> I mean, it would be so a shame if uh, if these delightful you know European relaxed lifestyle sort of gets corporified
1: well I don't think it's quite as bad as America or um, you know I, I, I have a I have a balance of our work in America where I think we definitely win the award for insanity in, in terms of what we consider important between work and life and balance and all that good stuff but um, it's very very hard to work with a lot of other people who judge themselves by the culture of a global company which has any American roots yeah. or even certain countries in Europe I think uh, England I think Australia I think some of the American speaking countries uh, English speaking countries tend to fall in the same direction but more to be explored as we get deeper into the into the experience of Nordic Business Forum
0: Last question is um, I, I, am I right that you've got a you've got a book w- in which a lot a lot of this is is going to appear com- coming out in the near future?
1: Yes, it's actually we just just signed a deal with HarperCollins, so we have a year to write and then a year to publish, so it's going to be a little bit of a long lag. It's 21 summer of 21, but we'll be launching at the Global Leadership Summit where um, I think a lot of your audience is also familiar and um, it's very exciting after 13 years of putting this content together and waiting for the perfect time. We found a publishing team that we're just completely in love with at Harper Business, and um, and it's been fascinating for me trying to write this book in a white space manner because as soon as you sign a book deal with a major publisher, everybody tells you how tortured the next period of your life will be. <laughs> um, so what I'm trying to do is create a writing story so that I can look back in in a year and a half and say this book was written in a white space manner that didn't. Um, ruin my life or my family or my sanity, and um, so far it's going really well.
0: I am glad to hear that. Yeah, well, it turns <laughs> out when you're writing, white space as it relates to productivity is great, but white space as it's a blank page because you can't do what to put <laughs> it's in there is not so awesome.
1: Yes. Not the best use of the term. This is absolutely correct.
0: Julia, <laughs> uh, well, we're out I'll of time. Plug,
1: I'll put a quick plug in for some of your larger do companies in cases of interest to them in some free, because of the book. Hmm. We're uh, expanding on a lot of that data that I told you about for the Million for 50 number. So people who have over two 300 employees, they can get a lot of that quantification work at no charge because we want to expand the database. So that will be really interesting to any of those leaders who are listening to that Million for 50 section, finding it intriguing but wondering how much it costs. It um, might cost nothing if they, if they give you a ring. So hopefully you'll give them that uh, contact information when we're done.
0: I will seek it out and make sure it's there. Great. Um, great, great, great. I feel like much better about a free plug for a free thing too. I think like that doesn't even count as a plug. That's just something we talked no, about. I
1: wasn't. Yeah, I'm just offering. <laughs> Let's call it an offer, not a plug.
0: That's a fantastic offer, Juliette, It's uh, it's great to talk to you, and I look forward to meeting you in uh, in Helsinki this fall.
1: Thank you. Me too. Going to be great.
0: Okay. Bye bye and thanks. Juliet Funt Ooh. joins us from White Space at Work. Uh, the book comes out in 2021, so you can start saving up now. And, uh, if you are a group of over 200, I mean, if you're an organization of over 200 and you kind of want that free reporting, write to Juliet at info at at com. which I have to say super inconvenient, you know, email address because the word at is in whitespaceatwork, but then info at is of course the at symbol like every other email address. That's my free plug and a a little bit of criticism on the email address itself. Thanks again. This has been Business as Unusual. I am Pep Rosenfeld from Amsterdam, where I'm going to grab my towel, a ladle full of cold water, and hit the sauna.